morning we're going to give a little lesson that we have called God's Comparisons. There are several ways that we're taught in the Bible. Of course, there's the direct way when God gives us commandments. There are inferences that we find that we are expected to follow. There are uh, antitypes and types that we like to dwell upon, which we hope to do some during the meeting. And then there's this system of comparisons that God uses. Jesus used these very often in his teaching. I want to employ some of these this afternoon and just say some things about them because there are uh, some good that comes from these particular comparisons that we're talking about. I have listed here on the board a number of these things used in the scriptures. We have babes, runners, soldiers, palm trees, cedar trees, and pilgrims. We want to talk about them for a little while. And there's at least one lesson that we get from each one of them. Now, everything about one of these particular items wouldn't be edifying nor beneficial to us. So we want to make sure that we pick out the very principle that Jesus Christ was using when we preach this sermon. For instance, there's not anything about a babe that looks like a palm tree or a cedar tree. There's nothing about these two that resemble each other. But there's a lesson in each one of them for a godly person or for a person who wants to be godly. So as I say this afternoon, we want to at least notice one thing out of each one of these comparisons that we have here. First, we're going to talk about babes. That's mentioned in the scriptures. And the reason it's mentioned is because there's a uh, lesson for it. First Peter 2 and 2, the apostle Peter said, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, as I said, there are lots of things about a babe that we don't want to emulate. Babies sometimes throw fits and bawl and squall and kick and throw tantrums to get what they want. Well, now, God's children are not supposed to do that. However, that is the case with some from time to time. And that's a very objectionable comparison when that's the case. That we want to mark out. We don't do that. But there is a, a likeness between a babe and a godly person, and that's this. They hunger for their principal type of food. They need that. And the reason they need that is because on it they grow. They will not grow without that. Now Peter's using a figure here when he says, As are like newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. What a natural figure in comparison we have here. And how grand and beautiful it is when fully applied. The Savior is said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God in John 3. And in that connection later said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven, our kingdom of God. So we are babes. We have done that already. That has taken place in our lives. Now, newborn babes in Christ, as newborn babes in Christ, we compare to these fleshly babes. Babes we all know, as I've said, hunger for milk. This is their basic and proper food. On it they grow. 
Now, babes in Christ must desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. In other words, the reason why we uh, grow and prosper is because we feed on the right kind of foods. Now, a child of God is not going to grow unless he feeds upon the milk of the word. That's all there is to it. He will have to do that in one way or another, either by studying it or listening to somebody expound it or someone who refers him to it or something of the kind. And the reason why we have so many people in the church who still are just babes is because they have never uh, desired the sincere milk of the word. They've never uh, ingested that. They've never benefited from it. They've never grown. And they always will be babes. We have some six-foot babes in the church. They've never made any progress whatsoever, you might say. Now, there's no other shortcut through to becoming a full-grown Christian than by uh, desiring and feeding upon the proper kind of food. Now, then, in this modern day and in this modern age, we have churches sometimes who try to provide for their members Various functions. You could say, what are you doing that for? That has nothing to do with church and our religious life. Well, we think it'll make you more spiritual if you'll do this. See, you'll be more spiritual. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one thing that will make a person spiritual, and that's the Word of God. Now, you can have all the retreats you want to have. You can have all the shindigs. You can have all the skating parties. You can have all swimming parties and you can have gymnasiums on your church and everything else, that's not growing to make a person strong spiritually. It may make a good swimmer out of him. It may make a good bowling uh, fellow out of him, but it's not going to make a good Christian out of him. It's not going to make a strong person. There's just one way to do that, and that's feeding upon the Word of God. Now, if you're going to do this other, you better sure find a time for imbibing the Word of God because you're not going to grow unless you do. And that's all there is to it. Uh, so we find that that's what the uh, uh, apostle is telling us and that's what we must do in order to become what we ought to become in life. We then turn to the next comparison and that's a runner. In Hebrews 12, we read these words from the great apostle Paul here who is comparing the Christians today to one of the marathon runners of that day and time. Not that he's recommending that necessarily, and not that he's approving of it, but there are some similarities between the two, and the similarities uh, are, uh, are beneficial to us. He says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I'm of the opinion that the men spoken of in the former chapter are the witnesses referred to here. And he's using, the wit he's using the runners that runs on these racetracks as Christians. Now, he says, since we are uh, surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, the word cloud means a great group or, or a, a, you might say, a big concourse of people. Now, wherefore, seeing we also are because of this, because we've got these witnesses, because we've got these people who are looking on, and judging us, witnessing to us, we let us desire the sincere, uh, he says here, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. 
I think the word patience is the key in that verse. Sometimes that's overlooked. Sometimes it's not mentioned. But Paul is talking to a group of people here who are enduring some very hard trials in the living of the Christian life. And because of this, there's an opportunity or rather a chance that they might grow weary along the road and drop out. So he's trying to prepare them and fortify them for a time when regardless of the temptations, regardless of the persecutions, regardless of the trials that might come upon you to try you and pull you down, you can, with patience, stay right on in there and run this race. It takes patience to run the Christian race. You can't do it all in one day. You can't do it in a brief period of time. It's day after day after day with whatever might come to impede your progress. You patiently go along and you've got to get yourself in a shape to have patience when you live the Christian life and never allow things to come in and hinder you. Now, we are supposed to be aware of the fact that we're uh, being uh, witnessed, witnessed, and that is by the former people in the former chapter. And we have here uh, a list of these people that we might mention because I think it's beneficial to us to mention these people uh, in this uh, former chapter here. These people... Uh, are, are, are the worthies, you might say. Some call them the great Christians, the godly worthies who are mentioned in this former chapter. And uh, they witness against us in the living of the Christian life. So, since that's the case, we're going to do better knowing that people like Job, like others, Noah, are watching down upon us. We're going to do a better job. You know, down at the school, when you're running a race down there, you're going to do your best, you think. You're going to get in there and do your very best when just the ordinary crowd's there. But if you happen to know that the mayors down there watching you today are the senator, maybe the governor. Now, you're not kidding me. You're going to get it on better if you know you've got some distinguished host watching you or guests watching you. Now, that's what Paul is saying here. We've got some mighty distinguished people looking down upon us today who have borne some mighty, mighty hard problems. And they're going to witness against us if we come up on the last day having failed in the little old obstacles that we've had to bear in life. They're going to, in essence, say, look what I bore. Look what I bore, and I stayed true. Now, what about you? That's the way it is. He said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the uh, cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. You see, that's Paul's point. He says, when you feel like you're about to give in, you're about to fail, look up at Jesus and see him. We've not yet resisted against blood like he did. We've never had to die. We've never been uh, uh, whipped and scourged and abused for righteousness sake and I hope we never will because I'm afraid in some places there wouldn't be enough left to have a quorum if we did because some of us can't even stand headaches some of us can't even stand to see a brother frown at us we'll quit the church we'll spite him we'll show him who's who we'll just go home quit the church 
So I don't think we'd fare very well if a scourge of persecutions came down upon the church today like it did in the earlier days. I'll tell you, it would separate the men from the boys, as we say down home. And we'd know whose metal was real and whose were not. So, we want to do that. Now he said in order to do this, in order to have this patience, you've got to get yourself in shape to run it without so many problems and obstacles. And the way you do that is take the weights off, throw them aside, get on the racetrack unimpeded, unhindered, then you can just let go down the racetrack. Now, people who know tell me that he was making a comparison here to those runners back in that day who in the warm-up rooms would put weights on their feet and walk around with weights on their feet. They would feel weighted down and heavy. When the time came to run the race, they would unsnap these weights and take them off of their feet, and they just felt light and fleet and could get them that racetrack and really go, like we used to do on the farm whenever we got warm enough to pull our shoes off, our big heavy winter shoes, you know. We felt so light we just couldn't hardly stay on the ground. Well, that's the idea. Now, you can do that with patience if you throw your weights away. But the reason why so many people never make it through to the end is because they're dragging some weights along with them. They've never taken the weights off. They were baptized. They came into the church. But they've got some problems. They're still dragging along. And they're going to always drag them. And they're going to never be up to par. They're going to never be up to the full-grown man in Christ because they're dragging along things that's holding them back. Now, that's, that's the story. That's the point that Paul is using right here in this business of being runners. Also, we have another thing, and that is we must run according to the rules. Now, you know, uh, we know that out yonder in the uh, sectarian world that they don't feel disposed to follow the rules, and they think it's okay to just overlook some of the things that we find recorded in God's Word. But unfortunately, some of that has dipped over into the church, and we have people today who preach theories indicating that the things that's laid down for us, we're not so stringently bound to obey them. If we just got enough love, if we fill our hearts with grace, we can just go along the way and all that's going to sort of overcome some of these things. Not a word of that true. If there's anything in the Bible that that doesn't teach, that's it. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 and 5, and he's still talking about running races too. He says, and if a man also strive for masteries, in other words, if he's out on that racetrack trying to win the goal and become a master in this, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. Now there's law, if you please. Now that certainly jars on the ears of these people who tell us today that we're completely under grace today and we have no law. No, he said, except ye strive lawfully. That just simply means what we've always known it meant. That is, follow the Bible. Just go according to the teachings of the Bible. That we can't release any of them. We can't overlook any of them. We can't dismiss any of them. And whatever it is that we might have, whatever it is that we think we've got that somebody else hasn't got, you just better not let that get a hold of you so that you think you don't have to obey. Now, to be more specific, it's fine to have love. In fact, we must have love. And it's fine good to have faith. 
Faith without works is dead. Being alone, though, the Bible says. And it's good to have grace. By grace are you saved through faith. And so on and so forth. But you just always remember this. Regardless of what your position is about love, regardless of what it is about faith, regardless of what it is about grace, you cannot overlook the fact that you've got to obey. Now, if you've got a theory about any of these, it leads you to think that there's commands in the Bible that you don't have to obey. You can just know it's wrong. Because it is wrong. Now, I don't know where these people got these ideas in the church of Christ. That you can go along the road and you don't have to obey the gospel. But don't you ever doubt what they're preaching it. I can stand up here in this pulpit this evening and tell you some things that would shock you about the so-called churches of Christ who started out with some of this theory right here. And you know where they are today? They're in Nashville, Tennessee. Some of them were some of the biggest churches in Nashville. They swayed them. And they don't even believe that you've got to obey the gospel to be saved. They've got open membership in their church where sectarians are accepted in as members of the church and their preachers swap pulpits with the denominational preachers and they still call themselves Churches of Christ. Some have even abandoned that. And so now that started with the idea that you can overlook some of the commands and love, grace, and so on and so forth is all that we need. We're going to be crowned if we strive lawfully and if we run the race through to the end, there's going to be a crown waiting for us. And here we have a comparison between ourselves and the marathon runners of that day. That was a big event back there in Greece and other places. These swift-footed, fleet-footed racers got on the track and they ran down that racetrack with all fleetness. And finally they broke the tape and they ran in. Their great chest, like Bellis's, they had run well. They'd stood fine. And so they've come to the end. The judge sitting up yonder, watching it all, comes down with a little crown. It's a laurel chaplet is what it is, made out of laurel leaves that grew in that day. It didn't work. It wasn't worth anything monetarily, but it was a symbol, and it represented victory. It represented uh, completeness. And the judge placed that upon the brow of that man who had won the race. But now you know that little crown he had. It soon became crisp. It soon crinkled away. It soon fell away to nothing. Withered. So Paul is making an, a comparison between that and you and I. Now not just one of us are going to run over the line. But Paul says run like there's just one of you. Run like you're trying to outrun the whole group. But everybody who's faithful will finish the course. And then Jesus Christ, the great judge, will come down and place a crown upon our head. And on that great crowning day, when we all march up before him one by one, he's going to put a crown on our heads. That's what the Bible says. Crowns are talked about all through the Bible. And Jesus Christ himself will crown us. And you know the difference between that crown and our crown? Not a wreath or garland for the head like theirs were, which was a laurel and in a few hours would fade and wither, but ours will be one, Paul says, that fadeth not away, reserved for us in heaven. In other words, we've got our crowns waiting for us.
they're over yonder now. And when we run the race through to the end, we're going to get our crown placed upon our heads. And that's a beautiful prospect. That's a wonderful concept to have in life. Some of our brethren have already finished their race. They've already grown on, gone on over the line. You know you have yours. I have mine at home. We look upon them with sentiment and with great love and respect for what they've done and for the accomplishments they've made. Sooner or later, you and I will cross over the line and we're going to have that crown if we're faithful. It's so sad this evening to think that there are so few, so many rather, who have fallen out of the race. All along the racetrack, you can see this, you can see this person, that person, another case of discouragement and despair that have fallen out of the race. Why? They didn't take their weights off. Consequently, it got too much for them. They couldn't live like the world and like Jesus too. So the world had the mastery and the world won and Jesus lost and they fell out along the racetrack. They're lying all along the way today. I can stand here and just name names just like that and you can too. But we have a comparison here that benefits us. And that is to get ourselves in a shape to where we can get on the racetrack and run it with patience. Let nothing hinder us and do it according to the rules too. Be in the right racetrack and do it according to the rules. Also, we have soldiers. And you know very well I'm not recommending physical warfare and carnal warfare. We're certainly opposed to that. But there's a similarity between a soldier in the army of his country and a soldier in the army of the Lord. And you know one of the biggest comparisons between the two is this learning hardness. Learning how to take it. In other words, 2 Timothy 2 and 3 says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now this is much like the runner. But what's he saying here? No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath called him to be a good soldier. Now, of course, this is not in the physical realm necessarily of, of uh, your uh, uh, secular jobs that you have. But he's talking about figuratively here, being a soldier for Jesus, and then allowing yourselves to divide your time and interest with worldly things. Now, a man who's a soldier in the army of our country, he certainly doesn't go home, plant a cotton crop, and try to raise a cotton crop while he's being a soldier. He doesn't get him a job selling insurance while he's trying to be a soldier. No, that would hinder him in being a good soldier, wouldn't it? I think it would. Now, in the living of the Christian life and fighting for Jesus Christ in the army of the Lord, we're not going to make much of a soldier either if we engage in some of the questionable things of life and divide our attention and get into these side things that hinder the living of the Christian life. I know some people today, they're good people, but they're dividing their interest. They're supposed to be soldiering for the Lord, but they're employing themselves, themselves with other pursuits too that are rather questionable and they're being a great hindrance to them in the Christian life. And as I said, one of, the, one of the other comparisons is learning how to stand it, learning how to take it. 
You know when this little boy goes off, this little 18-year-old, 21-year-old goes off to the army and gets into basic training, boot camp rather, basic training in the Navy or whatever, vice versa. One of the first things that he learns is to cut his apron strings with mama. Cut off mama's apron strings. He's a little man from now on. And when he comes back from the army, you're going to see a different boy because he's learned how to take it. And if he can't go through that training, he's dismissed. Now we've got too many people today who are, who are in basic training for the Lord. And they're learning how to take it. They're learning how to stand whatever it is that's in their way. And we have a great host of people who are making the goal. And they really are. You know, some folks think that there's nothing to living Christian life. That it's all joy, happiness, and peace. You know, that's, that's a dangerous concept to teach your children even. Don't go around telling everybody that the Christian life is nothing but just a, a mountain height experience all the time. There's nothing but a laughing thing, a fun thing, as they say nowadays. Not a word of it true. There are going to be days when you'll be happy. There will be days when you'll have full enjoyment. But there are going to come times when you're going to have to face some things. And you're going to do your child, you're going to do that weak man in Christ, that newborn Christian, a service by letting him know that there are some hardships to living the Christian life. I've told young preachers, I've said, if you think that preaching the gospel, I mean if you're sincere about it, and you really mean to be giving your heart to God and to the cause. Don't think that it's just going to be a blue suit and a red necktie and a sports automobile and running from one football game to another and volleyball vein. Oh, no. Your heart's going to be broken a hundred times. And you're going to shed a bucket of tears. And you're going to be disappointed so many times. You're going to have brethren who are going to prove false. And you're going to be hurt so many times till you won't think you can go on. But you've got to learn how to take it. And if you're a good soldier of Jesus Christ, you can take it. And whatever comes your way, you're going to survive it and go on. Talking to a young preacher the other day, called me just before I left home. Said, I don't want to talk to you. Said, I don't know what's the matter. I'm just down. I'm just down. He said, it seemed like. I said, I don't know what in the world you would be down about. I said, you're one of the best preachers we've got in the brotherhood. You've got more meetings than most of the old preachers. What else do you need? I said, the trouble with you is you've reached your pinnacle too soon. I said, most boys have to struggle years to get where you already are. I said, you're just going to have to just buckle up and get with it, boy. I said, as the old saying goes, if you can't stand the hot grease, get out of the kitchen. That's all I know. That's the best way I know to describe it. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're all compared to a soldier. And we have our armor to put on. And one of the ways of standing it is to put your armor on. Don't go out vulnerable. Don't go out without your armor. Turn over the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I'm not going to go through it this evening. But go over there and find the armor. Put it on. Somebody said Paul was in a prison cell. Watching, an watching a soldier walk backwards and forwards. And the Spirit inspired him to write this epistle. And he likened every piece of that soldier's armor to a Christian virtue that we're supposed to wear. And if we do that, we're not going to be defeated either. 
we're going to be able to make conquest for the Lord. We always will. Some seem to think that we must never be militant. But the putting on of an armor indicates aggression, a fight. Some folks think that preaching is supposed to just be soft stuff, sweet talk, talk all the time, just pretty little things. Don't ever be hard. Don't be, uh, don't, don't be uh, uh, aggressive. No, don't be, uh, you know, opposing anything. But just be sweet like Jesus, they say. Well, you can know right off that these people don't know Jesus very well. Jesus didn't sit around, twiddle his thumbs, and let everything go by. I see Jesus taking a whip going down there to the temple, driving out the money changers and turning over the tables, the coins running all over the tile floor of the temple precincts. And as Mr. Farrow says in the work that I mentioned this morning, it was a bit amusing to see these men who changed money scurrying about in all the filth that the cattle and the oxen had put there trying to get their coins back. No, the Christian life is not like that. We're supposed to be a part people who fight sin. We're full of love when it's a time to be lovable. But we are aggressive and militant when it's time to be aggressive and militant because we're compared to a soldier. And a soldier doesn't go around just holding ice cream parties all the time. A soldier fights. We are a people who do not know the meaning of the word retreat. Our word is charge. Charge. And we're moving on under the banner of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. No wonder the gentleman could write the song, Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. I like that stanza that says, Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane. But the church of Jesus constant shall remain. Gates of hell can never against this church prevail. We have God's own promise and it cannot fail. Onward Christian soldiers, he says. And that's the fight that we're in. 1 Timothy 6 and 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. 2 Corinthians 10 and 5 says, for though we wrestle, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. No, we don't buckle on military gear physically. We don't take arms and go out physically. But our fight is against the pulling down of strongholds. Well, I don't really know a great lot about palm trees except what I've read. Now talk to me about a pine. I can tell you about a pine. But a palm tree? Well, they tell me in Psalms 92... The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree, the Bible says. Well, they say it's a tree of beauty, and that I know, stately and tall, and it grows to great heights. Well, I like that idea. A godly man is that way. He's stately, he's tall, he grows to great heights in life. Figuratively speaking, a righteous man is a tall man, reputation-wise. He's a tall man. Honesty wise. He's a tall man morally wise. He's a tall man in every way you can think of. He may be a midget so far as his physical stature is concerned. But in the sight of God, he's a palm tree. He really is. 
Show me a righteous man. And I'll show you a man who's known all over his community. He's got people lined up wanting him to go their notes. He's the kind of man that people depend on. He's the kind of man on whose shoulders the church rests. He flourishes like a palm tree. Well, another thing about a palm tree is it can be seen from miles away. Going out across one of your deserts out here, you can see that palm tree standing a great distance away. And that's the way it is with a righteous man. He's known near and far. Another thing is it always grows upward, I'm told. And so does a godly man. The scriptures tell us, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord that made the heavens and the earth. And again, we read this beautiful passage. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's a palm tree man. And he exemplifies these principles in his life that he lives from day to day. And another one is this. A palm tree bears its best fruit in its old age. Not nothing against youth. No, we, wouldn't, we couldn't get along without our youth. Our, our beautiful, wonderful young people. We couldn't get along without them. No reflection on them. They bear some fruit. But if you want good fruit, if you want real luscious fruit, go to that old palm tree standing down yonder. It's been there for years and years. It's wrestled with the winds. It's fought the elements. It's brawny. It's somewhat uh, gnarled with the elements and with age. But off it you pick your best fruit. So it is with godly people. Godly young people are wonderful young people. But if you want real experience, if you want real advice, if you want some real service, if you want some real fruit, go to that old palm tree. It's been standing there for years and years. He's seen digression come. She's seen the tides turn. She's seen this fad and that fad go by and this style and that trend and she knows what's godly a palm tree Bear, bears its best fruit in its old age the record says the path of the justice as a shining light it shineth more, more and more unto the perfect day and there's no quitting place for old people I've had people to ask me, well, are, are, I suppose you're a retiring people that don't know our practice, you know. Well, we laugh at those people. We don't know what retiring is. We're not going to retire till the master says, well done. Until we lay our armor down. That's when we retire. We retire in glory land. Somebody asked me one time, when was I going to rest? And I said, when I get to glory, I reckon. That's the, that's the only rest I've ever had, the only rest I expect. When I get to glory land, that's when we're going to all rest. And that's the way it ought to be. But a righteous man just gets more godly. He gets more serene. He becomes more like God every day that he lives and every year that he lives. The Christian life is not one all in a day. It's not all one in a year. It's not one in, a, in ten years. But you blend into the Spirit of the Lord more and more unto the perfect day. We grow as we look in the mirror to be more like that image that we see in that mirror. From virtue 
to virtue, the Apostle Paul says. It's not, it doesn't all happen the day we're baptized, for sure. No, sir. All right. And again, we read, be thou faithful unto death. Not till you're 65, but be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. That's what the record says. And that's the way we like it. Well, next, he shall grow like the cedar in Lebanon. This country of Lebanon was a hilled country, beautiful templed hills with vast cedars growing there, huge cedars. It was where they went to get the timbers for the temple. King Hiram, who lived up there, old Solomon, contracted with him to get those big cedars out of the hills and float them down the river to build the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Cedars of Lebanon, they're renowned the world over. Now what on earth there is there a cedar tree that looks like a Christian or a godly person? Well, let us see. He shall grow like the cedars in Lebanon. The cedar is type of the Christian being evergreen. Notice, evergreen. Now that's a key thought right there. Evergreen, beautiful, aromatic, slow-growing, long-lived, and has many uses. The cedar keeps his color at all times. The cedar keeps his color in the winter as well as in the summer. And back home, back in the places where winter time comes and is so severe, you can see all the rest of the trees of the woods and the forest dropping their leaves. First they turn yellow, gold, brown, maroon, and then they drop off. And the forest is bare. It's dull. It's unsightly. But that cedar standing down yonder in November and in January, well, it looks greener than it does in June and in August. Maybe it's the cool air. I don't know. Maybe it's the contrast between it and the deadness and the dullness of the forest. But anyway, it's evergreen. There's not a snow too bad. There's not a freeze too hard. There's not a hurricane so strong. But what that old cedar's going to still hold is color. It's going to be green. Now, if that's not a picture of a righteous man, you tell me what he is. A righteous man, a boy, a girl, woman, is an individual who stays the same wherever you see them. If they're at church, they're, they're green. If you see them at the market, they're green. If you see them off on a trip, way away from home, they're still green. They have the same color. They don't change their colors like a chameleon lizard every time they pass over a different district or something of the kind, but they stay the same color. That's what the Bible says. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And again, wherefore be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that's the reason why a cedar tree is like a Christian. But then there's another uh, likeness. A cedar will bend without breaking too. It'll bear its burdens well. Now back down south, we seldom ever get a real bad snowstorm or freeze. But we do get a lot of ice storms. The humidity congeals upon the pine trees and upon the poles and everything. And then it turns to ice. 
and it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And finally, you can hear the little pine saplings down in the woods in wintertime cracking like shotguns. The big burden of ice just bends them over and they snap under the weight. Not a cedar. Not a cedar. I remember the cedar in our backyard used to stand out there by the old well. When a snow came, which it doesn't often do, we'd look out the back door and see that great big old tall cedar bending clear down to the ground with a great big bank of snow on it. We children all, look at the old cedar tree. It's almost down. And Mama would say, well, I don't know if that's going to ever rise up anymore or not. But it did. It bent mighty low, but it rose up again. Finally, a warmer day rolled around. The weak winter sun began to shine palely through the clouds, and just enough heat was finally felt till a drip, drip, dripping started out of that snow bank, and that snow melted away. And in a few days, it didn't happen all in one day, but a few days, we looked out there, and the old cedar was rising back up again. It had signs of wear, you can be assured of that. It looked a little ragged. It looked like it had been through it, but it stood back up again. A godly man and a godly woman, a godly boy and a godly girl can take their burdens without breaking. Now sinners out yonder, we find them committing suicide, putting a bullet through their heads, overdosing. They can't stand it. They can't take it anymore. But we've got something that impels us to move on. We have the Christian religion. We have Jesus Christ. We have the Bible. And it helps us to bear our burdens. I've seen some Christians who have borne some of the most trying burdens I think I ever did know. I've seen them sit back in the audience. I've seen them look up, try to hold their heads up when it just didn't look like they could hardly go anymore. We prayed for them. We worked with them. But they kept going. In a matter of a few years, or a few weeks, months maybe, the grace of God, communion of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ began to help these people and little by little the burdens began to wear away. And after a while you look back there and they're still just as strong, just as happy, and just as faithful to the Lord as they ever were. They did not break. They went down. They went down real low, but they never did break. I preached this sermon up in uh, northern Oklahoma uh, a few years ago. And I was so thrilled after the church services were ended, we all went over to a brother's house. and One of the sisters, real lovely girl, I've known her since she was just a baby. She came up with her husband. And she put her arms around her husband and looked at me and said, Brother Linwood, this is a cedar tree here. This is a cedar tree here, talking about her husband. And I said, well, I think that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard in my life. And sometimes, you know, it takes the Lord to carry us through. Last this evening, I'm going to be hurrying. We're pilgrims. What is there about a pilgrim that's like a godly person? Well, one of the things is he's a transit. He's passing through the land. This is not his home. He's in, in an interim land. He came from a home over yonder, 
And he's going through this strange land to a home over yonder. He's changing homes. He's moving. Just like the pilgrims did that we read about. They left England. They came by and stopped in Holland, you know, but they were not satisfied there. They came on to the shores of America. Now, we are pilgrims. We are headed home. And if we could ever get it in our minds that this is not our home down here, that's difficult to get people to see today because this is really not our home. Some people dig their stakes too deep. And the way they live and the way they act and the way they lay up, they seem to think they're here forever and ever and ever. But it'll just take a while for them to know they're not. One thing or another will come their way to make them know that they're just passing through. Like Albert Bromley's song says, this, I am a, I'm just passing through. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Talked to an old lady one time. All of her generations had gone on and she was standing kind of like John that we spoke of this morning. She told me she was sitting off on a beach by herself at one of the dinners in the church while everybody else was talking, visiting, having a big time. I went over and sat down by her. I said, how is it, Grandma? And she said, Brother Linwood, I don't feel at home anymore. I'm homesick. I'm lonely. Well, we don't want to be that way. But you know, in a sense, we've got to be that way or we'll divert our attention from the home shores over yonder. And we'll start depending on this life too much. And we'll become too preoccupied down here. You know, I don't believe some folks would go to heaven if they could tonight. I really don't. They don't come to church much. And what would they do in heaven? They don't like to do the things that heavenly people do. They'd rather be at Walmart or somewhere else, you know, than come to church. I don't think they'd be satisfied if they were in heaven. You, of course, you all heard the old worn out story about the preacher preaching, you know, and he asked everybody who all wanted to go to heaven to stand up, and everybody did but the old woman, you know, in Arkansas, I think it's supposed to be. Of course, it always is in Arkansas, or Kentucky one. He said, what about you, Aunt Martha? And she said, Arkansas is good enough for me. Well, that's the way it is with a lot of folks that they tell the honest goodness truth. They just say California's good enough for me. And whether they say it or not, they're showing that they mean it. You can be that assured. But a pilgrim is a person who's just passing through and he's not involving himself too much in the things of this life. Politics. Earning too much. Trying to build too much down here. I've seen some of my brethren build some mansions here lately. Well, I went in there and I felt just like a piano in Church of Christ. I just that about much out of, out of place, you know. I was embarrassed to go in them. It was so fine. Well, that's their business, of course. But it just seems as if they plan to stay here forever. I don't. And you don't either. We're pilgrims. Now, Peter said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. 
If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.